Let us pray, and then we're going to look at some scriptures this morning. Lord, thank you for blessing us like you do. We are privileged to be your children, privileged to be here this morning. Uh, We have no rights before you. We have only to say thank you and to praise you for what it is that you've done for us in Jesus. And so we do today. Be with us in the next few minutes as we talk about Scripture and as we relate Scripture to our lives. And we pray you bless us that we might serve and honor you through this. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen. This morning we are talking about, uh, in fact, for those of you who maybe haven't been here, uh, maybe aren't aware exactly of what we're doing in this class right now, is that we're going through our this church's core spiritual values, of which there are nine, and they're listed on our website and in various places. And we've been going through our core spiritual values and talking about, um, and when I say we, Kevin and I, um, have been doing this with some help from Michael a couple of weeks ago, where I, I, I kind of give some biblical theological direction to the thoughts about the core spiritual values and then the ideas that Kevin will come in the next week and talk about it from a more practical perspective. So this morning, we're going to lay some, founda- some foundation for the idea of being servants to each other, to those within the church, and servants to the world as well, which we say is one of our core spiritual values, that we desire to be servants both to those outside and inside our body, which I think uh, really does fit very well with what Jesus was asking disciples to do and to be. And so we talked within the last couple of weeks about being disciples, true followers of Jesus. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And it's perfect to follow up following Jesus with a discussion about what it means to serve those who are in and those who are outside our body. Because so much of discipleship, I think, is involved with the idea of being a servant. You might know, if you've been around church for a long time, that there are different words in the New Testament for servant. Like there is the word diakonos, which is the word for deacon, or I should say deacon is the translation of the word diakonos, which refers to a servant who is can be a leader, actually, within the household. And so in, in Greek and Roman culture, there was uh, the, the idea of an extended household family. When, when Paul talks about the household, for example, and he'll talk about fathers, and he'll talk about mothers, and he'll talk about children, and then he talks about slaves. The reason that he includes the slaves in those kinds of lists is because it was typical for them to speak of the entire household, including those who were slaves. And usually in a household like that, where you would have father, mother, children, and then all kinds of servants or slaves, you would have somebody who would be a higher order kind of slave, which would be a domestic kind of servant, and maybe would be the head servant within the larger household. And that person would be called a deacon, diakonos. Then there were other slaves or servants who were 
more the kind of slave that we think of as being slaves. Uh, the doulos, or plural douloi, the servants who would be lower than the diakonos. The diakonos might actually tell the douloi what to do. And what's interesting is that in the Bible, we are called both, but more often, when Paul or someone is referring to himself, even as an apostle, when he's referring to himself or he's referring to, to Christian servants, more often, it's the word douloi that is used, the word doulos. And so we are, uh, in some cases, appointed as special servants. We know what a deacon is. That's somebody who's appointed to a special role within the church. We know that, that we can be that. But more often, we are referred to as doulos or douloi, servants, in a slave-like capacity. And slaves, of course, not only to God, but even slaves to each other. And it's interesting how this whole concept of being a slave or a servant turns on its head so much about our world. I was talking with Randy just a moment ago. Randy's new to us this morning. And Randy was saying that he looks at the world and the world's kind of in a mess. And he, uh, there was a teacher that he's been listening to recently. And this teacher, uh, Christian teacher has been saying that if all the individual Christians in the world kind of got it right, if all the individual people in the world kind of got it right, then we would have a much better chance of having something right about society because we are comprised of a whole bunch of individuals and you get all those individuals right and it lifts the whole thing up. Get all the trees right and the forest looks a lot better. And I think that's correct. And it's certainly true within the church that when we all start being the kind of servants that God wants us to be, that the sum of all those individuals actually adds up to something quite greater than just the sum of the parts. Because as we function as the church of Christ in our world, we have a chance to really have an impact that God is going to bless because all the individuals were where they should be. I think that's right. We take all the individual gifted parts, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we add all of those up, and it contributes to a much more wonderful kind of body if we are all servant servants the way that God wants us to be. And so scripture does indeed call us to serve, to be servants, to servanthood, uh, in many places. Uh, that is a trademark of what it means to be a Christian. That we are servants, which again puts us kind of at odds with the rest of the world. In fact, it's interesting. You know, there's all kinds of talk these days, and there has been probably for 20 or 25 years, tons of talk in society and certainly within the business world about leadership. Everybody wants to talk about leadership. And speaking of leadership is extremely important, but it's amazing how little Jesus himself talked about leadership or its value. Like you don't see, you can't turn in the New Testament to all the places where Jesus talks about being a great leader. Paul talks about that some when he talks about elders. Jesus... Virtually none. When Jesus talks about leadership, he almost always talks about leaders and leadership in a negative way. That's interesting. Jesus doesn't talk about leaders. Jesus always talks about servants. Clearly, it was the priority of Jesus for us all to be great servants. And in fact, to be great followers. 
Jesus talks about us being great followers of him. Being a great follower of him is the only thing that qualifies you for being a great leader. And so he tends to focus on followership a lot more than leadership. And that it's those who are great followers who are becoming uh, great leaders. I want us to turn in our Bibles this morning. We're going to look at three different passages which will discuss the, the concept of servanthood. Specifically from Jesus in the first two and then from Peter in the third one. So Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to start. Mark chapter 8. And in verse 31, this is a passage that's paralleled in Matthew chapter 16, this famous confession of Peter. But here it says, he then began to teach them that the son of man and the son of man, of course, it's interesting because that's a technical term. Like the son of man is not just a reference to Jesus's humanity and his fleshliness. The expression son of man is a technical term making a reference to Daniel chapter 7. And Jesus is saying here, I'm I'm the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. And this son of man person has actually quite a status. In fact, this is Messiah we're talking about. The Jews had waited for thousands of years now, generations, for Messiah to come who's going to lead the Jews He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, of course, which is a reference to himself, must suffer. And that right there is like oxymoron, contradiction, something doesn't fit. What do you mean the Son of Man, who is Messiah, is going to suffer? That's why Peter is like, what? What are you talking about? He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, the very people who should be accepting Messiah, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Because Peter's like, this is crazy talk. That you're saying on the one hand, you're Messiah, you're son of man. And then on the other hand, all this suffering and being killed thing, that just does not work. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned to look to the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross And follow me. And you have to keep in mind that when Jesus says take up his cross, these people were incredibly familiar with crosses. We tend to, we tend to spiritualize all of this. When we hear the expression take up your cross, we just kind of automatically go, okay, that represents giving ourselves completely to Christ and taking up the burdens of all that it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But the expression, take up your cross, was very well known to them because they saw people crucified all the time. It's possible that people who are hearing this could have seen as many as a thousand people or more crucified in their lifetimes. They saw people along the road crucified all the time. Every time somebody brought up some rebellious idea and and then 
started any kind of rebellion against the Romans, the Romans would go out and crucify a few just to shut them down and let them know that they shouldn't be acting so rebellious. Crucifixion was well known to them. It was brutal. It was... Um, in their face, overt, they couldn't get away from it. It was a sickening kind of experience that they would have had on a regular basis. And Jesus says, here, you take up your cross. And that would have been scary. Like, for one thing, they might have thought, he's serious. He's just talked about how he's going to suffer and be killed, and now he's saying that we're supposed to take up our crosses? That is scary stuff. For, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the good news of the kingdom, he says the gospel there, but it's really the notion is the good news of the kingdom, will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his, uh, in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So there's a very, very strong statement here by Jesus about what it means for us to be followers of him. To take up our cross and to be the kind of servant that he was. Now, there are other passages that probably come to mind in terms of the depth of the service. Like you're all familiar, or many of you are going to be familiar with Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and following, about how Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant. He humbled himself, made himself a servant, and then not just any kind of servant, but he makes himself a humble servant unto death and is crucified. And again, we tend to just automatically kind of spiritualize that. And indeed, I think it's appropriate to do so. But when we just automatically kind of spiritualize that without thinking about it very much, we don't think about the gravity and the depth of the kind of sacrifice that's made. Like, I think you would admit that in our world, it is common for us to try and have, as, as we often say, have our cake and eat it too. And so we talk a lot about the idea of being servants, but we still have one foot in the world, and not just one foot, but usually our whole selves are pretty wrapped up in it and pretty distracted by it. And all the while, Jesus is saying, I want you to be crucified for me. I want you to take up your cross and carry it. Which just heads so much in a different direction. Uh, than us having one foot in the world and drinking so much from that fountain and at the same time trying to be the servant that Jesus wants us to be. It's difficult to do that. So we would make, make a mistake, I guess, is what I'm saying, if we too quickly overlook words like suffer and take up your cross and spiritualize those right out of significance so that we end up making no sacrifices. Jesus wants us to make some sacrifices. One of the beautiful things about that passage where the woman with the two mites 
It's all she has, and she gives it to Jesus. One of the beautiful things about that is that here's a life that is so giving over herself to God that she makes a genuine sacrifice. Like when it comes to monetary things, we tend to give as little as we think we can get away with, and especially when we're going to get a tax deduction. And Jesus seems to call us to make sacrifices when it comes to things like that. Suffering. That is more consequential than I think what we, than what we typically think of. All right, now I want you to turn to Mark 10. I'd like to say, okay, I really challenged us all, made us all kind of worry, feel guilty about our sacrifices or not, and now I'm gonna, but now I'm gonna say something that'll make us all feel a lot better. But I don't know that this does. Except for the fact that we should feel better when we are giving ourselves completely to God. Verse 35 says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's interesting, because that's, you know, that you'd think that after all this time, and if I have this right, and I know that the gospels are not always entirely chronological, but chapter 8 comes before chapter 10. I'm thinking they should have heard something here about sacrifice. But they want to know if Jesus will do for them whatever they ask. That's not very encouraging in terms of thinking that they got it. I'm not sure that they have. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And so we'd like it if you would just forget for a moment that you know Peter. And we'd like you to take Nathaniel and Thomas and Philip, and we'd like you to just kind of put them at the back, if you would, and we'd like to have a better place. We'd like you to put us on your left and your right in your glory. We want some status here. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. And that may be one of the great understatements in the Bible. <laughs> Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And of course, not even close. We can, they answered, again, not understanding. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm ba- baptized with. Meaning, of course, that they are going to indeed suffer as he does. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. In other words, you guys don't make the cut. And in fact, if you're going to be asking for things like this, you really don't make the cut. At the moment you think, I want the place of honor, that's right when you're not qualified for it. That's why the ones who go to the back get asked to come to the front. The ones who say, I'd like to be a leader and sit in the front or right or left, they're the ones who are going to get pushed to the back. That's the way this works. 
when the ten heard about this, they were saddened because their brothers had gone astray. (laughs) No, that's not what it says. It says, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And I'm guessing that largely because they didn't think of it first. And they can't believe that that James thinks that he's better than me. Like, I can't imagine that this wasn't Peter. Like, Peter's always putting his foot into it. I'm thinking that Peter had to be one of those who said, who do you think you are? This needs to be me who is sitting on his right or his left. And you think you're going to take that place? I don't think they were just upset because these guys weren't the kind of servants that they needed to be. Now, I could be wrong. I shouldn't be judging them. But there are other signs in the New Testament that these guys didn't always completely get it. And James and John being right at the core of the relationships with Jesus, one of the big three, if they don't get it, I'm thinking Peter probably doesn't either. And Peter was the other one of the big three. So he, I'm thinking he probably was one of those who said, how come I can't be at the right or left? You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. There goes Jesus talking about leadership. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of most. That's not what it says. If you want to be great, you need to be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. Why did you come into the world, Jesus, to be a servant? Why did you come into the world, Jesus, to die? Why did you come into the world, Jesus, to suffer? This puts us in a precarious place when we begin to desire something for ourselves, whether it's in the world or in the kingdom or whatever. That's what they wanted. They wanted some kind of position and some kind of status. And Jesus says, what are you doing? You have no idea. And the rest of you, you are all indignant. You too. You need to be slaves of all. Well, we could turn to John 13 and we could see Jesus saying that he wants them to do and to be what he is. And in John 13, it's the passage where Jesus takes off his outer clothing and he gets down in front of the disciples and he washes their feet. And I said a few moments ago, this distinction between do loss 
and diakonos and the kinds of servants that there were. This one who's at the door with the water and washing the feet of those who come into the house because their feet are dirty is a doulos. And Jesus says, I want you to be this kind of servant willing to wash the feet of these others. Servants wash feet. That's what we do. And that's what our Lord did. And we need to be those who follow after him in acts of service like that. Now I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Is it cold in here? This is the third time I've turned the heat on today. Turn it up to 28. No, I'm kidding. First Peter chapter 2. This is such great stuff. Like we could be looking at chapter 2, verse 4, where it talks about the, the one who is the stone rejected by men. We could talk about how we are offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ, which really are ourselves. But look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. That's interesting because clearly uh, we're on the outs here, not on the in. And one of the things that makes us aliens as strangers here is that we act differently than the rest. And act like servants. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Visits us. That is interesting. Because he says that our behavior is reflected upon by those who are in the world and that there are some who are actually going to respond to the way in which we live. So he makes that statement about live this way and the pagans, hopefully they're going to look at you, they're going to see you living well and then you're going to you know, you're going to be a great example for them and, and perhaps they will come and, and glorify God. But then he doesn't stop. 
Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether it's to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. So we're going to be submissive or servants to the governing authorities so that we can silence the foolish talk of others. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Okay, so in light of the whole governmental system and all that, I want you to be submissive and servants and show that to the world. And then we get the context for what Peter's really talking about when he says all of that. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing what is wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, Paul and Peter have been accused by many people through the centuries of somehow being pro-slavery because they didn't specifically condemn slavery. And so there are a lot of people who think, well, Christianity, there's a problem with Christianity because it, it doesn't really come out and condemn slavery. And you could even construe this as some kind of advocacy of slavery. Well, I don't think that's what this is all about at all. I think that if Peter had a chance to change governmental society, to change the government in terms of its policy with respect to this, that he would have done so. But Peter knows that at this point, with the early church being just off the ground, in the first few decades of the church, and with the whole of society consisting of slavery, he as an individual was not going to change everything simply by protesting. At this point, in fact, probably if he would have just protested, the Romans would have just killed him the way they kill all the other rebellious slaves, probably would have crucified him at that point, And there wouldn't have been much positive good really done through any kind of rebellious act. And I think God, through his wisdom, knows that that's the case. And so he goes about changing things in a completely different way. Instead, he has Peter say, don't stop slavery. Be a great slave. The way that Paul would say to Onesimus, as he returns him to Philemon, be a great slave. And it's not because Paul is any more in love with slavery than Peter is, or more of an advocate of slavery than Peter is. Neither one of them, I don't think, would be advocates of slavery in the whole slave-master system that was absolutely dominating the world in the social strata of first century Palestine where the Romans are in control. They're not in favor of slavery, What they're in favor of is that Christianity somehow receives from society some kind of positive affirmation. That it be allowed to exist. And then has the chance eventually of slowly, with time, changing everything. And so today, you and I don't live in a culture of slavery. And I know that there's lots of slavery still going on in the world. I don't doubt that at all. I recognize all the problems there. 
But by and large, society, the world, looks at the activity of slavery and says, no, this is a mistake. How do we go from the Roman world where slavery was the norm and absolutely acceptable to now where it's not? And it took a long time and it took a lot of effort, but eventually things did indeed change. And I think that Christianity had so much to do with that. But the core idea of what a Christian is, is we get that from Jesus. And he came as a servant and he came as a slave. And he was one person who convinced a lot of other people eventually that slavery was inappropriate after he had himself become a suffering slave first. And it seems to me like Peter here is calling these Christians to something really radical when it comes to being slaves to the point where not only are they submitting themselves and slaves to each other, but in this case, in their culture, in their context, even willing to be the kind of slaves that would tolerate that within their social situation. And they were, if they're going to be slaves, which they had to be, many of them, they were to be great slaves and in the process serving Christ. And that's all because, he says, Christ left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Because he was that first. Now, there must be some reflections that you've had while I went on for the last 35 minutes or so and talked about these scriptures, there must have been some reflections that you've had about what it means for us to be servants of the Lord and of each other and in the church and even of society. Am I misconstruing something here? I don't mind hearing that I am. Is there not a radical call here? Maybe more radical than we even realize sometimes? What do you think? Go ahead. What, when you say that I have to recognize, what do you mean I have to recognize? Do I have to see it as, as a, a service? As, uh... do, you, do you mean, should I be able to recognize in myself service so that I can say, I am being a servant right now? And are you asking, is that appropriate? Yeah. You know, people say oftentimes that there's no such thing as a purely altruistic deed. That nobody ever does anything only for the sake of the good. Somehow, in the midst of doing even the good thing with a great heart, they're still doing it hoping they'll get some recognition. Is that what, is that your, what you're kind of asking? And I recognize the problem. Um, and I don't know, because of our humanity, if we're ever going to be completely free of that. But 
But even if we're not, we're certainly called to be servants anyway. Like, it is true that when one serves well Christ, that we typically are going to be able to say to ourselves, I served Christ today. I did the best with this I could. Um, We know when we make sacrifices and when we don't. Um, But probably the crucial part is that we make it. Yeah. Yeah. Like the ideal would be that we could serve with a joyful heart, but there are sometimes the fact is when you serve and you did it knowing that you didn't really want to do it. <laughs> sometimes that's the case. Were you going to give June the microphone? Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I think what comes into it a lot is praying. You have to pray. Um, if you're praying to God and asking him to open doors for you in how you can serve um, and then a door opens then how can you how can it be nothing but humility and you know I, I think if you're praying for it and the door is opened then I don't know what I'm trying to say. Okay, no, I, I, I think I can follow that. Like June's, June's asking the question or saying uh, that a lot of times this kind of servanthood is joined by prayer. And that when we pray and ask God to bless us with opportunities to serve, and then God gives us those opportunities, that there's, there's something significant happening there. And we need to recognize that for what it is and humbly accept that opportunity when it comes. Is that fair? And I agree. Um, in fact, there is something to be said... Uh, the person who is willing to really pray for opportunities of service, really hoping that God will bless them with those opportunities, I think is a servant even before they have the opportunity. Because they have had that, because it's, it's the heart that's so devoted to that kind of service. And I would agree. Kevin? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good comment. Yeah. Yeah, in response to my comment about how uh, some people have said there's no such thing as a truly altruistic act because we all desire to receive something back from it uh, when we give. We want notoriety or whatever. And Kevin's asking the question, um, what about a mother's love? Do mothers not make that kind of sacrifice, not wanting anything in return at all other than the good of the child that they are blessing? And I think that's a great comment. Uh, and, and in fact, again, I think this is what Jesus does. Now, Jesus does, in fact, recognize that he is going to be granted great blessing after his life with the resurrection. Jesus knows all of that. But the fact that he separated from his father before it comes makes me think that he must have been doing it absolutely not for the sake of the reward. Because what he has to endure, I think, is so incredible uh, that he could not make that decision at the same time hoping, hoping for the reward afterwards. 
It's just too great. Maybe that's the same thing with the mother. Some of you would have seen Sophie's Choice years and years and years ago. Oh, what a movie. I, you know, in that, in that context, a mother had to make a choice about which child was going to live and which one was going to go to the concentration camp and die. And she made a choice. I saw a hand here somewhere. Go ahead, Daryl. Go ahead, use the, go ahead and use the microphone. I've been trying to restate the questions so they get on the uh, recording, but go ahead. When people take on Christianity as, and accept it as their way of life... I'm just going to make sure this is on. Sorry. Yeah, it is. Go ahead. When people take on Christianity and accept it as their way of life... Uh, I think really what happens to them is they are mandated to become like Jesus. And all of us should live our life so that uh, we conduct ourselves the way that Jesus conducted himself. And if that is in fact true, then Jesus was a servant, then all Christians should become servants, just as Jesus did. Mm-hmm. I would agree, and I would add to that, and I think this is your point. Jesus is the logos of God. Like, it's not inappropriate in my theology to say Jesus is God. And then he becomes like us which is a bigger leap from high to low than any of us will ever make, period. There is nothing that approaches the kind of choice that Jesus made when he became a human servant and then even unto death and death on the cross. We, we can't ever begin to make any kind of leap from whoever we are to that, the way that Jesus did. And so to try and emulate that kind of service in him, of course, we can't actually emulate it because... It's too big of a leap. But I do think Christ calls us to that kind of that kind of sacrifice. You had something else you wanted to add? Well, I, my thought is that uh, in living our Christian lives, we sometimes, it sometimes escapes us that we are supposed to be being transformed into the image of Jesus. And so we don't conduct ourselves quite the way that we should oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. Joanne, one more comment. Let's, let's go ahead and have the micro. Let's talk into the microphone. And oh this will be the last comment that we're going right. to we'll have to stop here. Okay. Um, I've done service for, for many, many years. Now, if I did it just for the, to get a, a uh, pat on the back and well done, job well done, then I think I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. I'm doing it, um, I don't always get that um, pat on the back from the people that I serve, but I do it because God has was the ultimate server, and He's um, so I do it for Him. He tells me to serve the, the, the hungry, to feed the hungry, to, to clothe the... the people and and i just feel you do it for those reasons 
then you'll you'll get uh, the reward every time. Yeah. Yeah. Like there are opportunities we sometimes have to serve in ways that are absolutely anonymous so that nobody ever knows what we've done. Only the Lord. That's interesting. Somebody might say, well, then you got the good feeling of doing something anonymous, so you still were selfish when you did it. (laughs) But I don't know. Something that you do that's absolutely anonymous is not seeking something for yourself. I think it's just receiving the blessing of having done something good and it coming back to you. Because it does, in fact, feel good when you do something for someone else. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You can find. Right. You know, if you say, "Oh, am I doing this because I'm going to show people how good I am?" Right. Yeah, June's just making the point that we would handcuff ourselves and stop ourselves from doing anything positive if we were constantly concerned about what somebody else is thinking of our action. I think that's the case. Anyway, good discussion. I think we have definitely established a baseline in terms of what God wants from us uh, in our lives. He wants from us truly sacrificial service offered to him. Thanks, everybody.